0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So we're going to take a little break from Trumpland, yes, thank God, this week so that I can welcome a guest to my show who is a world-famous magician. Why a magician, you might ask? Well, that's because there's something the magicians know about their audience that is not too dissimilar to what politicians and news outlets know about their audience, and that is that people want to believe. So that's the entire reason that magic works in the first place. We'll get to this more in the show, but you can imagine how it relates to fake news and social media and the world we live in today. So my guest has some fascinating stories he's going to tell us about the marketing tricks old magicians used to become famous like Houdini and folks like that. And he's going to explain how some amazing tricks work, which he's not really supposed to do, but he'll do it just for us as long as you don't tell anyone. And he's going to tell us how magic is often used in war, in the battlefield. Yes, in war. In fact, during World War II, there was a group of magicians who were recruited by the Allies to help fight Hitler. They helped disguise battleships, make entire ports disappear from the sky so that bombers couldn't see them, and they also created these James Bond-like objects that prisoners of war could use to escape, like shoelaces embedded with wire that they could saw through bars, or board games that contain real currency and playing cards with maps of escape routes. And finally, he's going to talk to us about how magicians sometimes work with folks like the CIA and FBI to try to catch bad guys. In fact, my guest today has actually created a TV show around this very concept. If you stick around after my guest is on, I'm going to talk to John Kelly about a story that I wrote that's going to be in this issue's Vanity Fair about spies who work in silicon valley yes russian and chinese spies who work for companies like facebook and twitter and google trying to steal secrets about ai and futuristic technologies and so on and so forth so stick around after the show and you'll hear about that welcome to inside the hive i am your host nick bilden and i have a magician in front of me can you can you can you do a magic trick ta here I am. Whoa. So um, my guest today is uh, David Guang, who has been a magician for many, many years, um, uh, studied at Harvard. Uh, he didn't go the traditional traditional... Route for a magician, but we'll we'll get to this in a little bit. Um, he's uh, written an amazing book uh, on uh, illusions and deception. He has a uh, uh, you producer on the TV show Deception. I am Deception on ABC. is about a magician that joins
1: the FBI, and it was something I hatched with Chris Fiedek, uh our
0: brilliant showrunner. He created Chuck, so it has that, that fun spy sensibility to it. Nice, and then uh, and you also do the New York Times crossword puzzles. You create those, which which we'll get to, and. Uh, and you gave a TED talk recently about um, how uh, illusions and puzzles and things can change how you wander through the world, right? Yeah, and I break down illusion into its principles. I like pulling back the curtain on
1: on magic and showing you how your your brain is well, so imperfect. This is,
0: so I, I I wanted to so part of the reason I wanted to have you on is I'm fascinated by the history of all this and and if technology has changed magic and um, and how, um, but also you know it seems like the world we live in today uh is full of of complete bullshit most of the time uh especially on social media and other places and, and in politics and uh and i wanted to hear kind of your thoughts about how how people pull off this these these deceptions and how one can There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. So so let's get started. I'm curious how did you get started being a magician?
1: Most of us Start when we are very young. I was a seven-year-old kid when I saw a magician performing at a pumpkin patch in upstate New York. As you do. Yep. And uh, the the key element there, the key moment was that this magician didn't just fool me, but he fooled my biochemist father, who Hmm. is the smartest omniscient guy I know. And, uh, when I what saw was the, the scientist, it's, it's the little red sponge ball trick, which many magicians still think is one of the most powerful tricks that you can do because it's such a, it defies the laws of physics. And basically the magician puts a little red sponge ball in the kid's hand, takes a second one, makes it disappear. And then the kid opens his hand and he has two. My mind was blown, but then he did the exact same thing to my father. He put a little red sponge ball in my dad's hand, made a second one disappear, my my father opened his hand and he had two. And I remember turning to my dad and saying, how did that work? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, I have no idea. How did it work? Well, I can't, even the simplest tricks like that, I cannot reveal.
0: You can't reveal? Can you, no. can you tell us any tricks in how they work? Just, I, I'm glad you asked
1: that. Whether it's my book or Deception on ABC, I do pull back the curtain. But it's always on the principles and the scientific and psychological underpinnings of how... The tricks
0: works. but so don't I, Penn and Teller—they aren't they? Don't they show you how things work?
1: Yeah, they're the the great uh, crusaders of this uh, approach, and they famously have—they've sawed a lady in half in a clear plastic box, and uh, but they always put a twist on the end that makes you question what just happened. So, um, and they they obey the rules um, that that I try to follow as well, which is don't reveal anything that could ruin somebody's magic show so these tricks that are old enough are okay to skewer do
0: you are do you as a magician see other tricks and know how they all work or are there some that you're like holy shit is that real magic for the most part I, i don't believe in real magic probably unfortunately
1: uh for the most part i speak the language of this profession and i and i know how everything works but every once in a while somebody comes up with something really cool And we call that getting burned. When a magician fools another magician, we call it getting burned because you feel it in your chest and you're like, oh my God, what just happened? (laughs) Well, there was
0: one trick. There's one trick that I still cannot ever get my head around, which I think I mentioned to you uh, last time we saw each other, which was, um, there was a magician and it was an astronaut who was going to space. I may mess this up a little bit, but he was going to space and the magician said to him, stop at the local Dwayne Reed or something on your way to space. Um, and he buy a deck of cards and he did and, gets up into space, and the magician was down here on Earth on television and uh, and picked a card or said pick a card or whatever, and uh, when the, the astronaut opened up the deck of cards, it was turned around. It's a great trick,
1: and I'm, I'm glad it fooled you uh, because I actually think that's somewhat problematic. That gets into the territory of a pitfall in magic that we call too impossible. So, So the fact that he was on the on the moon or orbiting the moon or wherever he was mm-hmm. makes it. So there's no plausible way that they could have, uh, communicated or, to, or a card could have traveled. In other words, if I'm going to make a card disappear right in front of you and it appears in a box next to me, your mind will imagine and fill in this gap that I probably slipped it into the box when you weren't looking. But when we're talking about from the earth to the, to a, orbiting space station, uh, you're, it's too impossible and your brain actually goes to the easiest solution. Which is? Which might be...
0: That that the, <laughs> that 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 the astronaut was, was up, in on it or, or that
1: um, it's maybe not a regular pack of cards or that maybe... There was a TV edit involved. You start to not believe the magic because it's too good. Do
0: you believe that was that a magic trick? or I know how that was done. And you I'm, do?
1: I'm not, I can't Come tell on. you. I can't tell
0: you. Oh, that one has literally plagued Even some my of mind. The simplest tricks are, are sacred to us. Um, so over the years, you know, technology, over the last decade, two decades, technology has disrupted every industry imaginable. Um, I mean, we're doing a podcast ten, twenty years ago, that wouldn't have existed, and we, you know, you'd be on NPR or yeah. not doing, you know, a radio interview. What? How has technology affected magic? We've
1: had to evolve with it. Certainly, if you go on YouTube, all these tricks are exposed. In fact, you could probably do a deep. I Google could look search up my astronaut out. one. Yeah, yeah. Right, I'm good. not going to lead you to the trailhead of that, but you're welcome <laughs> to go down that path. Uh, so, we've had to do a number of things. First of all, some people, and this is a lot of fun, some people release
0: fake videos of explanations just to dilute the pool. So, they're making fake news about magic fake to, make, news. Yeah, to, like, make, to your, make people believe that they're understanding how a trick works. Or that you're going to
1: waste five minutes of your time thinking how you're going to learn it, and then you get to the end, and it's either a fake explanation or it's, or it's just a gotcha moment. Huh. But... On a larger scale, the way I think it's affected our approach is that fewer people now are pretending to have superpowers in a sort of godlike way. Um,
0: Were early magicians believed to have had superpowers in a godlike way? Well, I think
1: even if you look at the late 80s, early 90s when people were making buildings and David Copperfield was making the Statue of Liberty disappear – You couldn't do that today because everyone has a video camera on their phone, and you Mm. can't get away with something like that. No one's going to believe it. So the approach with magicians today is a lot more stripped down, and it's basically acknowledging up front that we are technicians, and it's sleight of hand, and it's misdirection, and we're going to demonstrate this for you now and fool you, and maybe even... Uh, expose a little bit, maybe even let you see some of the moves and make it sort of a teaching effect. But then, do a little
0: twist at the end to still still fool you. And so, I, I, you recently did an interview um, where you were talking about how so much of the so many of the tricks today and so much of the magic today is actually. Built on the ideas of people who were around, uh, Dakota, people like that, who were around, um, a hundred years ago, right? And that not, not that much has actually changed. You're still doing the whole, saw the woman in half and, and things like that. Yeah. We, we, we stand on the
1: shoulders of those giants from the turn of the last century. And we're, we're, a lot of magicians are putting a fresh coat of paint on that old stuff.
0: And, and so technology hasn't way. made the woman being sword in half better or different or
1: no there's there's cooler ways to do that trick now and certainly there have been development development uh, excuse me certainly there have been developments with uh technology microcircuitry um ipad magic things like that where where tricks are getting better and more more deceptive and we often take these uh these circuit is very well-designed, technologically advanced things, and we hide them in analog devices and still pretend that we're using a
0: normal pencil when there's, you know, wires running throughout it. Do you... Um, when you first started and, and the things you do today, you've taken this kind of... I wouldn't say it's a route that I've seen any other magician take. You went to Harvard. You, you know, you do crossword puzzles. You've um, written a book on how you can apply it to business and life and so on and so forth. How did you start to kind of pull those things and those strands together? I couldn't have planned
1: any of, any of it for sure. Um, and it, it it it's funny, like I, I went to Harvard and I just wanted to study history, but I ended up... Uh, Were folk- you like
0: doing magic tricks in you know, oh, yeah, Harvard yeah, yeah, Square yeah. all the time? That's and, the
1: thing. I've been doing magic at a professional level since I was a little kid, but I never thought there was an actual career in it. So that came quite late. And I pulled together all these different experiences I had. But it, it was always a passion. I focused my history major on Houdini and Thurston and Keller and all these great magicians from the golden era. And then uh, and then the light bulb turned on not so long ago, when I was 30 years old, seven years ago, that I should fuse together my world of puzzles and games and magic and kind of do this hybrid cerebral brainy magician thing. And it... Um, it's been a
0: natural fit, and it works well. And so before we get to – I want to get to your book and the TV show and fake news and all that fun stuff. But I, I wanted to – when you were studying all these early magicians like Houdini and people like that, what were some of the most fascinating things you learned about them? Like what, were there some that were like really eccentric or that came up with amazing ideas that had blown people's minds or – Well, these these guys were expert
1: marketers. Some of them were amazing illusion builders, but Houdini was really a master of capturing the public's attention. Uh, My favorite character, this is my favorite character in all of magic history, was uh, the great Chinese magician Chung Ling Su. Okay. And Chung Ling Su was actually the follower, uh, a copycat of the original... A uh, great Chinese conjurer named named Qingling Fu. What year is this? Qingling Fu, I think, came over. It was definitely nineteenth century. I think that Qingling Fu made a splash in the eighteen nineties at uh, one of the big expositions uh, in the Midwest. You know, like the World's Fair kind of thing.
0: Did, did these guys? And before you go on, it did these were these were was the public, did they believe that it was truly magic or did they know it was some sort of technological feat that they had pulled off?
1: No, I think people really... It, it's it's not so different than today. You you go to a magic show and you buy into the contract that this is entertainment, but then things happen over the course of that hour and you start to think, maybe this guy is possessed with something or maybe he has an ability that that I don't know about. And people... People want to believe at the end of the day. Hmm. So there are some people that fully buy into it, and they forget that it was advertised as entertainment. All right, so let's go back to, to these guys. Qingling Fu, he comes over to the U.S. He's the great court conjurer to the Empress Dowager of China, and he's doing tricks with firecrackers and rice bowls and beautifully colored ribbons and the Chinese linking rings, which we still do today. So these Chinese tricks, and sparks this craze for Oriental magic in America and in uh, in Europe, and all of a sudden these imitators start coming out of the works. So then we get Chung Ling Su, who starts claiming that he is the real court conjurer to the Empress Dowager of China. So you have this Chinese magician face off,
0: and one of them is one of them is honest, and the other is making it up, or are they both making it up.
1: They're both very good magicians, but. Yes, Ching Ling Fu, the original guy, uh, he was the real— I, I, I mean, I don't really know if the Empress Dowager of China had anointed him. It's, I will have to look that up. But, uh, but yes, he was the original one, and Cheng Ling Su was the copycat. And then they, they get into this magic fight, and the headlines read, uh, Can Fu Fool Su, or Will Su Su Fu? did I get that right? that's even a tongue twister I can't even remember but you get the idea and they go they have they they, they have this public challenge which is basically uh, that they'll they'll show up and try to outdo each other with their tricks and the original Chinese magician Ching Ling Fu does not show up so Chung Ling Su declares himself as the winner and he, (laughs) he goes on to great success touring the world one of the highest paid performers of his day And then the craziest thing happens. Chung Ling Su, I think this is in 1925 or 6, he's at the Woodgreen Empire Theater in London doing his famous bullet catch trick, which is condemned to death by the Boxer Rebellion.
0: What is the trick?
1: uh, Riflemen would stand on one side, there's beautiful colored posters, lithograph posters you can see of this, and would fire a bullet at him, and he would catch it on this porcelain plate. Okay. And the gun fires, and he collapses to the stage. Now, Chung Ling Su never spoke English ever. It was always Chinese. But in that moment, he, he says something to the effect of something horrible's happened. In English. In English. Yeah. And he dies <laughs> that night. And the world finds out that Chung Ling Su was an American white man pretending to be Chinese. A brilliant illusion builder named William Robinson. And the magic community knew this, but the the public didn't really know. And how did the trick trick gone wrong? Over the course of many, many, many performances, a screw had bore a hole uh, allowing little pieces of... Little grains of gunpowder to seep into the area that would actually fire the bullet.
0: Huh. And did his nemesis come out of the dark after that, or
1: he didn't really? Um, I, I've read some accounts, and and he just kind of
0: retired in China, and and wow, that's amazing. So yeah. he was, so he pretended all along that he was a Chinese magician, but really he was. Yeah. just... And there the were man.
1: lots of there were lots of Oriental impersonators at the time. And I, that's what I found so fascinating about the whole subject is that there was this delicious tension where, on the one hand, pretending you are Asian enhances the mysticism of your show, but on the other hand, you are, uh, scorning this other, the immigrants, and you're you're walking around as a bumbling Confucian on stage and making fun of this race, and then you're pulling miracles and saying, ah, but they have this. Innate huh. mysticism
0: who what did you learn anything about Houdini that was fascinating
1: or i 'm not the best Houdini scholar, but uh you know he's he he really wh- what 's interesting to me is is the time that Houdini really took off and it was um it was this era where people were starting to go to to Coney Island and to the beach and and bodybuilding and this male masculinity was really kind of popping uh that was the that was tarzan and uh, i would have done terrible in the air <laughs> <laughs> and uh so he he represented the the new american man and he's one of the he's one of the sort of great father figures of this country that's when the country was really
0: how did so how does houdini become houdini i mean is why is it that we we know his name versus you know any other magician from that era? No, it's,
1: it's, it's a great question because I know many magicians today who are plagued. They're kind of in the twilight of their career and they can't quite understand still why every five-year-old kid learns who Houdini Houdini is, is, but not, you know, I won't name any names, but, um, some of these great people that I respect are kind of at the ends of their careers and they're, they, they're focused on legacy and they're like, I don't get it. You know, I've done all these things and, Made all this money and all, and but kids only know Houdini, and I, I think it just—I think Houdini was in that era of these great figures that, um, as as America was on the rise, and he he slots right in with like Babe Ruth and Albert Einstein, and
0: and is is part of that in response to the political and cultural climate at the time? Is I mean, does has if you kind of look at the parallel of media? Um, Around politics and culture and technology, even cell phones and things, you can see it. It you know the medium becoming the message in many respects. Has magic gone through that era too? I'm not sure I follow your question. Like ha is it, it seems so cultural and entertainment and and media are in in many respects a response to yeah. what is happening yeah. uh, in politics in society, war, so on and so forth. And I'm curious if magic if these magicians, I mean, was Houdini, you know? I'm
1: not sure what was going on. I don't know politically if that affected uh, affected his rise. I, I think today uh, that that's certainly the case. In what way? I just think that people are now, we're seeing the rise of of people wanting to experience live performance in theater. It's a return to, like, the more practical. And the magicians that are having great success today, Like, uh, like Dan White in New York, he's got his show at the Nomad Hotel, like these parlor shows where people can go and watch people do something with their two hands.
0: That is not technologically related. It's fascinating in the uh, the front page of the New York times in 1876, July 26th, I think it is or something like that. Um, there's this, this new invention called the telephone that has, has, it's the first story about it and, and the. I remember the piece said that, uh, you know, people will never leave their house again. They'll never go to a concert or a church or, you know, a show. Uh, they'll just live in their homes, and that's how they'll communicate and experience everything. And there's a, a year later, the phonograph came out, and you know, and they were like, little boys will never have to learn how to read and right. will never go to churches. and And it seems that the more technology comes about, the more we want to experience these things in person
1: and i think that's why we've had such success with immersive theater in the last 10 years
0: because of because of the response to technology yeah
1: yeah. and you have to you have to turn off your phone as you you know walk around sleep no more or you know do an escape room
0: so okay let's talk a little bit about um about your book um what how did the book come about and and what's kind of let's tell the listeners what the gist of it and is the book came about because
1: it seemed like the the I I was giving TED talks and and breaking magic down and it just seemed let's let's put these into a a system for people that the seven ways that I break magic into its fundamental principles and I think that people gain a lot more appreciation for for magic and all the work that goes into it when they when they see you know, when they look at it at a on a granular level,
0: and how so? Okay, when you look at the world we live in today, fake news, um, lies by politicians and the media, um, lots of deception. How can you apply the things that you have learned to that to understanding what is real and what is not, or does it not apply?
1: I wish I could say it was uh, that I was an expert that that I had this miracle way that you could cut through all the BS, but um.
0: but in the past were there moments where we had these times of you know was it, what was the Cheng Ling Su is that right? Did Cheng I, Ling Su Cheng was Ling was the, Su the like the I mean ha- yeah I mean there has to have been times in the in the past where this is you know come through where we've seen examples of. Uh, just sort of mass manipulation mass manipulation yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it i i think if if what seems to be going on if an individual is set on deceiving everyone and you you put your mind to it and you just and you keep at it you're gonna you're gonna people want to believe. You know, people want to buy into these things.
0: Is that part of the the theory with magic? Is that part of the reason it works is because we want to believe it works?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, on the extreme, um, in the spectrum of magicians, there are some that do pretend to have superpowers all the time. And those are... Like mind readers and mentalists, and they actually infuriate the rest of the magicians a little bit.
0: What do you mean, mind readers and mentalists? They are the ones that say, I know what you're thinking, or what? How's the. They just. Mentalists, many of them will
1: claim basically 24 7 that they were born with this ability to, as you said, know what you're thinking and, and read your thoughts. And that kind of just rubs the rest of the magic community a little wrong a little bit uh because because we're like no you use the same tricks that we use you're just you've just crafted this character and you're you're not ever stepping off the stage you have this thing going this performance going all the time and then you have if you go even more extreme there are you know basically frauds that when you look at people that um are are con men and they take you you know they prey on your emotions. You have the evangelists and the the uh, you know fortune tellers and tarot card readers and people and, and spiritualists who are basically using these tricks of the trade to to work miracles. And uh, you know there's a great documentary that everyone should check out on Netflix, which is called "An Honest Liar," which is about James Randi. And who is James Randi? James Randi is magician turned. Uh, you know, head crusader against um, he, he head head to is the best way to put it. Okay. And 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 James Randi famously for years and years and years had his million dollar challenge, basically saying, if anyone can prove, uh, scientifically pass this test that there is uh, the existence of the supernatural, or that you can pass this test and demonstrate you have ESP, I'll give you a million dollars. And no one's been able to do it but but magicians have always been the great debunkers because we know how all the tricks work so you know back in the 19th century uh, or or into the into the 20s when spiritualism is is making its way through America uh where you know this is like séances and contacting mm-hmm. your contacting your the dear dead like aunt. Ouija boards exactly and the table will rise up and the bell will start to ring. And it's make a, you know, rap three times if you can hear me. And you hear these raps. And, and magicians have always known those tricks of pulling the strings and, you know, and raising the table with your leg. And Houdini would famously bust in on these seances or he would go incognito and then bust them up. And then even in 1926, Houdini testified before Congress to try to get, spiritualism band. Did he really? From uh, from DC. Wow. So, yeah, uh, check out uh, An Honest Liar about James Randi, and it's about how he would come on uh, late-night TV shows just after one of these um, uh, ESP people would do something or spoonbenders like Uri Geller, and then he would expose how it's done to try to bring them down. Uh, but what's so interesting is that even after his team exposed one of the big uh televangelists for having an earpiece mm. and, and and what would the televangelists th- pretend to do? Uh it was it was Popoff. I think it's Peter Popoff if I re- recall. And he would get information. He would say, is this person in the audience? Does this person live at this address? Come forward, right? So, so that's so so that's the first deception. But then the harmful thing, <clears throat> which is what um you know these these debunkers really rail against is he would hold up his hand and put it on your forehead and say, "You're healed, and you don't have to worry about the cancer anymore." And that is bad. And that's, that was that's just, the extreme crime.
0: And people believed it, and that's those videos yeah. of like people wailing and crying. And, yeah, and it, not seeking medical attention. And the, and the and someone is just in their ear.
1: Yeah, or, there's and there's a lot of there's a lot of tricks. Um, and and basically, but what, what's fascinating is even after they exposed this man, the the sermon hall was filled the next night and people want to believe they want, they need to latch on to something like
0: that. It seems like it's interesting. You know, when you look at media, um, in the media landscape, we always believed in the beginning of the internet that it would, and especially when media platforms started to arrive and when social media began 10 years ago, we believed that, that there would be, this would be the perfect opportunity for everyone to see everyone else's side. Uh, mm-hmm. that you would be able to not just pick up the New York Times if you're left-leaning or the Wall Street Journal, if you're right-leaning or the New York Post or whatever, that you would, that you would see everything because it would, it would be filtered to you in that way. And it seems that because we want to believe the things we want to believe, no one wants to see those things, mm-hmm. and therefore they don't follow them, and the algorithms don't, you know. Uh, it seems it's like it, it, it's the same principles that apply to the magic tricks that you do.
1: Uh, people, are, people are stubborn. It's very hard to convince someone that even when, even when I hear an account of someone who did something, whether it's a magician or a, or a fortune teller, uh, and I explain, you know, how that, uh, how that person did it, uh, not the magicians, but, yeah, but <laughs> what, the, you're allowed uh, to tell uh, on fortune
0: tells, but not on magicians.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I, cause I can't, I can't reveal the technical secrets behind magic tricks, but, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, this guy drives me crazy. I got to say, um, the Hollywood Medium. Have you seen that show? No. His, his name. It's Tyler. Tyler. Maybe Tyler Henry. Tyler. Tyler. Something. He's in his early twenties. He's on the E Channel, and he's Hollywood Medium, and he has these celebrities on, and he's, uh, you know, revealing impossible things about him. And I just want to be like, oh,
0: guys. Do you believe that? That <laughs> do you believe that there that you can people there are people that can talk to the dead or. Do you
1: believe? I've never. Way? I'm. I please prove me wrong. I, I'm dying to meet someone who can. I. I just. I don't believe it I, because I. I've this lived for decades now, knowing the tricks of the trade. I will say that the one area where I. I think there is, um, there's energy that I don't understand is when it comes to Eastern medicine, and I still think there's a great divide between Western and Eastern medicine, and there's all sorts of. Magic that happens around the chi and the life force that I don't quite understand. In what way? Uh, just in, you know, I've seen chi masters controlling, you know, putting putting electric currents through them and controlling that sort of pulse. And uh, and I think, you know, I think there's magic to acupuncture and and you know a lot of these systems that. We don't quite that are just
0: grasp in the West that you know? are not explainable. Do you yeah. do you believe um, and this is totally a, a, a rerouted question? I'm sorry, but do you believe that do you believe in like God or anything? Do you that there's some higher power or no? It's an appropriate question. Um,
1: and it, and the reason I would I, say the reason I, would I ask say no this is,
0: right now. <laughs> no right now. The reason I ask <laughs> yeah. is because a lot of scientists and people that who are t- trying to explain the unexplainable. Do not that I speak yeah, to yeah, most yeah. people that I, I, speak I think
1: to. i'm in that camp as well
0: and it, it a, a magician's predominantly in i that don't camp? I, I don't
1: know the answer to that um has magic, I've met a lot of Christian magicians that you know that are that are replicating the miracles and trying to share you know god's work with
0: people by demonstrating it and has uh has your viewpoint on it changed as you've uh Done more magic over the years, or has it not? Affected it's It's it? hard
1: to track that. I, I think you're probably right that over the decades of doing this, I I fall into the camp of of scientists uh, who are uh, who don't believe. But it, it's hard to track a moment where I have have switched sides. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: So I got a call from my editor last week saying that Away Travel was going to be our sponsor this week, and they wanted to send me a carry-on suitcase that they make for me to check out. And it just arrived in the mail, and I opened it up, and I'm not kidding here. The first thing that came out of my mouth was, holy shit, this is amazing. Uh, Excuse my French. So traditional suitcases, you know, the wheels break. They're kind of difficult to lug around if you overfill them. There's problems, so on and so forth. What Away Travel has done is they've essentially reinvented the carry-on suitcase. The suitcases are made out of this premium German polycarbonate that is incredibly impactful. They have this patent pending compression system so if you overfill your suitcase as we all do it actually stretches to allow for all these extra clothes uh, they have a TSA approved combination lock that's built in that you cannot lose cuz we all know we buy those stupid little combination locks at the airport forget the code lose them whatever it is one of the coolest things that it has which made me curse out loud is the fact that they have there's this little built in USB charger so that you can charge your iPhone up to five times uh, while you're traveling. And who has not been stuck at the airport with a dead cell phone? So I I gotta say, this is an incredible suitcase. It looks really cool. I cannot wait. I'm going on a trip next week. I literally cannot wait to use this suitcase. It's amazing. Uh, Again, it's made by Away Travel. You have to check it out. They're offering a deal this week. To Inside the Hive listeners, uh, you get twenty dollars off a suitcase if you visit awaytravel.com slash hive. Once again, that's awaytravel.com slash hive, and then you can use the promo code Hive, if you know how to spell it H I V E. It's uh, check it out. Go to their Twitter, their at away, their Instagram at away. And you can see some of this really cool luggage. It comes in all different colors, uh, different sizes: There's the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium carry-on. You can get it in pink, black, aluminum. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, a really phenomenal suitcase. Uh, I I definitely implore you to check it out. All right, so I want to come I want to come forward to today and some of the things that you're working on now. But I, I do you haven't? I I loved that story before. Do you have another? Another magic story before oh, we magic before story. we move on to uh, to the 20th century.
1: Well, there's there's been yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite subjects is the way that magicians have been involved in war efforts. Okay. So there are a few salient examples um, in the 1850s, I believe. Again, I'm I'm so bad with dates, but I think it was the 1850s when when Napoleon III sends Jean-Robert Houdin down to Algeria. So I'll tell you who who Houdin is. Houdin is the... That's where Houdini gets his name, because he was the father of modern magic. That's what we say. And Houdin was the first person that made magic a theatrical evening performance. And people would come to his theater in Paris, and they would dress to the nines and enjoy uh theatrical presentations as opposed to magic being like juggling on the streets before mm-hmm. right and Houdin was the son of a, a of a watchmaker, so he built all these amazing automata these robots that could choose playing cards and um and you know robots that were trapeze artists that could swing freely and it looked it's like unbelievable robots? they look like um uh, well some of them look like little um, ventriloquist dolls and some of them are just sit on a table and they move and yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But then there are, if you've ever seen um, like the, the film, the illusionist with Edward Norton uh, you could see the orange tree, which is, which is a a tree that would have lush green leaves and then suddenly oranges would grow out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh And that was meant to look real, and I'm sure that audiences in the 19th century thought that was real. Anyway, uh, Robert Houdin, the great uh, founding father of all this, uh, he's sent by Napoleon III to, this is horribly imperialistic, but to like quell the Algerian rebellion by demonstrating to those people that the the magic of the West was more powerful, and that they should stop following all these... uh, shaman and healers that were like causing the uprising. So, so he goes down to do a number of performances. Um, and one of the great stories that comes out of that is uh, something called the light and heavy chest. And that's one of his inventions. And this was a, a wooden box with a metal handle that he would lift up and down freely on stage. It was quite light. And then he would call up the burliest tribesmen and say, lift up the box. And he wouldn't be able to, and um, excuse me. <clears throat> and basically, what Robert Houdin did is that he put a, a, a large electromagnet underneath the stage, hmm. so that metal handle it made it impossible to lift the box up. Hmm. And then, as a as a exclamation point on this trick, he would send a shock through that uh, through that metal handle, and the, the man would go running <laughs> from the stage. But this is you know <laughs> this is a, a great example of the way that magicians embrace technology before the public. Really knows what it is, mm-hmm. and he was on top of electromagnetism, on top of electricity. Uh, and today, when I when I see a talk at a conference and somebody is, you know, levitating a disc through
0: you know magnetic levitation or uh, you know, so did his did those war efforts work for uh, with him or you know when Napoleon sent him down there did did they? Did they change the
1: i, I, I you know what I confess i don't really know the the outcome of that <laughs> i've always been fascinated by the magic story of it um, um, i'll tell you i mean'll i tell you a more direct uh, story number two is um is World War two okay and you have Jasper masculine who is the the son of Neville masculine this you know the celebrated magic family, and he gets um acquired to to help with the war effort with the allies and he's and he puts his magic gang together and this magic magic gang wow and it was basically a camouflage unit and the and and the u.s had its own version of this called the ghost army but this was this kind of whimsical era of uh you know and this would lead into the you know james bond kind of era where um they were They would use inflatable tanks and inflatable airplanes to make it seem like the 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 unit was bigger that they had more military presence, or they would cover up tanks with with um panels to make it look like a truck they would They're fooling a lot of aerial photography there's There's one story that most people think is apocryphal, but it's just fun to tell anyway, which is that in order to stop the Germans from bombing. Alexandria he turned out the lights of the city and then turned on spotlights down the river and that the Germans bombed that instead. So that's kind of misdirection on a global scale.
0: So they so they this this magic team figured out all these different things and applied it to uh to stopping and helping the war efforts. That's yes, so fascinating. That's right. Uh do we still do that today or we are we are we smarter or dumber or I I
1: I know some magicians have who have spoken with the CIA about things
0: but what um, things <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> I'm waiting for the CIA to call me I think I'll be a lot of fun <laughs> And is it, is this the point in time where magic starts to kind of become move onto the screen too is is that what happens then or is it a little further It's a little further in the in the 80s you have
1: um Doug Henning the Canadian magician who, um, who Ivan Reitman collaborated with, the you know, producer director and, and, and Doug really opened up that world of, of TV magic. Um, and Mark Wilson
0: also had TV specials
1: and then David Copperfield just, you know. Yeah, I was, was gonna, the man. I was going to yeah. ask,
0: how did, in the same way that Houdini became Houdini, how did David Copperfield become David Copperfield?
1: Well, it's a great comparison. Both of those, they're both so charming, and you know, the the biggest personalities on stage. And and David, um, you know, like everyone else, started when he was a little kid, and uh, you, you can see early videos of him and early.
0: Is it is it mostly that it's not that you're a better magician, but that you're a better marketer?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, David David is is talented. Uh, Houdini was a card magician and was not very good at it. So that's a clear case of someone who who figured out what, uh, that his handcuff act was you know really capturing the attention of people, and then all those stunts of being locked in prison and yeah, those are all marketing stunts. Um, but 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 Copperfield is you know he was, he was an amazing front-of-house character. And he he knew what people wanted to see, those magic specials. I mean, I, I watched, everyone sat on the living room rug and tuned into those. And, and
0: he's in Vegas now, right? He's in Vegas, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's fast forward to today. So you have a, a show on ABC uh, called Deception. How did that come about?
1: Well, I'll insert one quick final last example, which is in the 1950s, uh, John Mulholland a celebrated New York magician was picked up by the CIA to help train operatives there and that was you know largely to, to come up with ways to assassinate Fidel Castro
0: well, how is, how how do you apply uh, being a magician to assassinating Fidel Castro well he
1: he came up with all these methods and basically made this handbook that shows how to palm you know vials of poison and drop them in a drink as you walk by, and how how operatives can communicate with each other and disappear around corners, and it's all um, manipulating uh, human perception. Hmm. So this is what largely inspired me to create this show, Deception, that um, well, Chris Fiedek, again, our brilliant writer, created the show, but this is an idea that I've had for a long time, which is to have a magician join the FBI or the CIA or the police force, and um, and I was already consulting on Blind Spot on NBC. That's that's where you know Jamie Alexander plays this woman covered head to toe in tattoos, which is basically a, a treasure map. And we—that's a Greg Berlanti show, you know, who's mayor of TV town right now. And uh, that team, Martin Garrow, the Blind Spot showrunner, and Chris Fedak and Greg and I created this show deception.
0: And so tell us something what what are some of the things that the characters how do you, how magic plays a role in uh in solving these cases? Well, he's uh he's a fallen celebrity. He gets into
1: trouble in the first episode. He he and his you know, you find out that he has a twin brother, which we we don't make that a big reveal at the end. We wanted to distance ourselves from the prestige, which is an amazing movie. Mm. Um and you know, he loses his show. His brothers in jail, accused of murder. They have to work their way back into the public's favor, and yeah, he he teams up with the FBI. Our magician, Cameron Black, and he can walk into a room as as I can, I suppose, in real life, and we see different angles and we see different opportunities, and we know how people think. And uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that we structure crimes and bank heists and robberies around magic and kind of uh the writers are always asking me like either like how does this episode revolve around a principle of illusion or sometimes you know they'll come up with the the character arc and we figure out how to reverse engineer magic and, into that
0: wh- and do you take um any of these that are actual actually real like do you take these as a, as things that have happened or are they all made up
1: Oh, the 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 writers sometimes take inspiration from from real things. Our our second episode um was inspired by that event from last year, that kind of that grisly assassination where somebody was sprayed in the face with that toxin. This was the yep. in did it happen in Malaysia? It, it, yeah, but it was Kim Jong. Yeah, it was, it was, it was North Korea. Yeah. Uh, I think it was in Singapore's yeah. yeah. airport or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And Th- that those people thought they were on a reality show hmm. and that they were participating in something completely innocuous, so we took that as as inspiration as a way that you know there's something we call dual reality and magic, which is where you you have an audience member doing your bidding that sounds so nefarious,
0: but <laughs> it sounds like the Trump administration
1: <laughs> and they think that they are um. Doing something else, they think that they're participating in a different part of the trick. Uh, so that's you know that's an example of a of a crime that
0: is based on a you know on deception. And when you look back through, I, I, one of my favorite bank robbery stories is, is if you, uh, you you probably know this one, but there was a guy who, um, and I may screw up some of the details, but the the gist of it is is correct. But he. Um, he went on Craigslist. Yes,
1: I love this story. Yeah,
0: he. Do uh, you want to tell it because you'll probably tell it better? Well,
1: no, you got it. It's a, it was up in Seattle.
0: Yeah, and, and he, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Can no, 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 you because I'm gonna, I, I thought it was actually somewhere in the Midwest. So y- your turn.
1: Well, I, I think we both remember the important things, which is that he goes on Craigslist and he says, you know, for twenty bucks an hour or something, show up on this street corner. Wearing I don't know what it is, a it was whi- wearing a white hat and, it was wearing
0: uh yeah, wearing your full like painter's gear, white hat, white suit, uh painting suit. Yeah. Uh and uh and he went in, robbed a bank in that same outfit. Yeah. Uh and walked out and disappeared into disappeared the crowd. Disappeared uh into the crowd and, and then the cop- got on a like an inner tube and like tried to escape down the river in a well, he, in a raft no he escaped bit, right? but the reason that he the only reason that he got caught was because it was a homeless guy who was living behind the bank and he had seen him scoping the place out a few days earlier and for some reason had written down his license plate and so you know the cops thought okay we're never going to figure this one out and then they the homeless guy was like hey i wrote this down and it turned out it was him yeah it's a it's a perfect example of uh of deception it would have worked
1: it's so great
0: do you ever think like oh i should try this i should try to rob this bank in this way i could probably pull this off i'm always
1: i'm always daydreaming about stuff like that (laughs) but I, i try to separate the what i do on stage from real life
0: so can you tell us i know you can't tell us how magic how magicians do their tricks but like can you tell us can you give us any kind of i think you know any explanation of something like how did Houdini get out of the box? Was he picking the locks or was he, were they not locked or like what? I'll say this. We, we
1: prepare for everything and we have many, many backup plans. We call them outs. We can get out of anything. And, and then we play the presentation off as spontaneous, you know? So, I don't have a specific example for Houdini, but I'll make one up because I'm, again, I'm not that familiar with, with Houdini's life, but I'm sure he did this, which is someone from the audience coming forward and saying, try these handcuffs that I made from home, you know, like, um, I think people say that the mirror cuffs, which was like a, this, you know, celebrated in time when Houdini got out of cuffs, you know, people say that was just a setup marketing stunt but the thing is that this is what we do is we're prepared for things ahead of time and then we play them off as spontaneous
0: so those so the guy who comes up with the handcuffs i made from home is, does that person work for houdini or does that person in this really have in this made up example yeah that, yes I I, I I can see that happening is someone who here
1: i'll tell you this is one of my favorite stories okay. um this involves a, a story here in hollywood and um a a director asked me to come over to his house and uh you know, I, I work on a lot of film and TV projects as a consultant. And so I was asked to come over and um and 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 teach something the, the way a magician would think, right? Mm-hmm. So my friend Blake and I came over and we we showed up late. We were fifteen minutes late to the house. Uh we, we apologized that we couldn't find the place but it's okay because once you start doing magic tricks everybody's happy were there a lot a lot of people there or is it just the director it was just the the a director and an actor got it and we we finished doing tricks in the living room and uh the director turns to me and says okay show me your your coolest trick and i turn to my friend blake and we're like well we just did all of our stuff but we could probably come up with something so do you have a driveway that we can go into is there an outdoor space we can go into and he says well i have a i have a lovely backyard should we go there instead. And we agreed. So we headed out to the back. And I said to the um, director, name any playing card. And he said five of hearts. And then my friend turned to the actor and said, point anywhere you want in the backyard. And he pointed at uh, like a row of bushes that was kind of two o'clock from where we were standing. We're standing on the back veranda looking at this into the backyard. so we headed over and I said, to the guys, dig into the mulch at the base of of the bushes there and see what you find. And they found a folded up playing card, and it was the five of hearts. And how did we do it? Well, because this was like a magic lesson. Yeah, I pulled out my iPad pla- and played a video that that taught them what we did. And basically, we were there three hours earlier burying fifty two playing cards in that guy's backyard (laughs) and then we played it off as spontaneous we purposely you knew he didn't have a driveway we yeah that that, that, let's start at the top we we showed up late to the house on purpose so that we could say sorry we we couldn't find it we've never been here before Mm -hmm. we started planting those seeds we waited to do one we waited for him to ask us to do one last trick we wait, and, and we were like, uh, we don't really have anything, but we can try something. And, but it was his idea. He yeah. didn't say we have one final
0: thing. So if he hadn't have asked, would you have been like, eh, should
1: we do one more? I, absolutely. Hey. And we can always pivot because yeah. here's, here's the thing, and this gets to the driveway, right? Uh, I suggested the driveway, and he suggested the backyard. And what if he'd have said, okay, exactly. let's do the driveway? We would have gone out there, and I would have said, you know what? This isn't really working. Can we try your backyard instead? And we never tell you what the end of the story is we can always pivot to get where we want to go. Because if we tell you what the end is, then we have to follow that direct path.
0: So so then your friend Blake had to remember where all 52 cards yeah, were? Yeah, we um, we documented on a map where every every card was. Did he look at the map or did he just remember? No, he remembered.
1: Got but it. there's also uh, something else I'm not telling you, which I'll let you... You guys can read the book and see. There's part two of this trick. What's well, part two? No, you can't do either. that. You've got to. You got, can you give us just a, a preview, like a trailer of part two? The trailer is that we wanted the director to go out into the backyard and try to find the other 51 cards and not be able to find them. Hmm. That's that's the trailer.
0: And how, so, um, I'm sorry, I have a few questions about the trick. How did, was he home? Do you know? Like, what would you have done if he was home? Or if he we we you?
1: we were in cahoots with with his assistant, we were let into that. Got house. it.
0: Got okay. it. Got it. But
1: I've I've definitely sneaked into people's houses before and to prepare for things. And you know, we you, we like to we like to hide playing cards. Uh, I like to put them uh, under the uh, the insoles of people's shoes so that you're like. You know, you're walking around with a three of hearts, and I just I wait for an opportunity to to do a trick with the three of hearts. How do
0: you get the shoes off? Do you knock them out, or uh...
1: <laughs> no? You'll make that. You'll make a, a second three of hearts disappear, and then you'll say, "Check your shoe." So, like we, you know, we we wait a long time for these things to.
0: Do you, uh, as you're waiting, are you like filled with excitement? Like, oh my god, I'm going to pull the card out of the <laughs> you shoe. You have to. I'll tell you. Okay, I'll tell you the best trick I ever did. I was about to ask, what's the best trick you've ever
1: done? I w- you wait decades for something like this to happen, and I was performing for uh, an investment bank or, uh, or a hedge fund or something like that in philadelphia and we're having drinks the night before at, at a bar and they're all crowding around and i'm doing sleight of hand and i take the opportunity i mentioned i kind of i'm always looking for angles we take the opportunity i take the opportunity to uh to slip the two of clubs into this guy's right jacket pocket
0: sleight I, of hand slip it
1: yeah, we call that put pocketing. Okay, okay. So I compliment him on his on the fabric of his coat, which kind of allows me to, you know, invade his personal space. I touch him on the shoulder and grab his collar, and I say, "This is a really nice jacket." And I slip the two of clubs in his pocket. So now, if I were truly, if I were better prepared for that moment, I would have had a second two of clubs. Mm -hmm. do a card trick, make that two of clubs disappear, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, it's in your pocket. But I didn't. I didn't have one. So I decide, okay, I'm going to do a trick with the two of spades. Close enough. When I finish the two of spades trick, I'll say, you know, the two of spades has a sister card, the two Mm -hmm. of clubs. Check your pocket. Mm -hmm. But I don't even get that far. I open the cards, and this, you know, owlish banker, investment banker, who wasn't having any of my, Performances that night. He goes, All right, Magic Boy, you think you're so good, make the two of clubs appear. (laughs) And it's as you said, in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, oh my god, oh my god, like do not blow this, do not blow this. And you can't rush it. Because remember what I said at the top, we were talking about too impossible with the astronaut. Oh, but come on, you couldn't you have just been like checking your pocket. If you do it too fast, it's too impossible. And and the audience will go to the easiest solution, which is He He was was already, maybe, maybe he was in on it. That's a good call. Or it was already there and maybe it was already there and he got lucky. So instead I said, all right, two of clubs. And I fan through the deck of cards and I pretend to take out the two of clubs because I don't have one and I vanish it with a flourish.
0: How do you pretend? Does he not see that it's the two of spades or something? Or I just, I,
1: I don't think I just, I don't, I didn't show them the face. Sometimes you can flash the yep. two of spades, or you could have a th- you know a three and cover up one of the pips or something. But uh, and then I made it disappear as if it were palmed in my hand, and I came about a foot away from the guy's jacket with my hand, and I kind of made this magical gesture as I released the card into the ether towards his jacket. And you have to do that; you have to give them just enough to believe. That, that that card can travel. That maybe there's maybe I was really good at throwing it in at that moment, or maybe there was a string that pulled it in, or yeah, I don't know.
0: That's where your brain starts to lie to you. And d- and, and was, was and know. was the Irish banker impressed? No, he he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, you were like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. Um, what's your uh, um, What's your favorite trick that you've ever seen or performed? I I
1: really love. Um, I really love Penn and Teller's bullet catch trick. Back to that
0: dangerous. Is trick. that the one where they catch it in their mouth, or yeah, they they fire at each other from opposite sides of the stage. And, and how does that one? Did, did they show how that one works? No, no, no. That one's that's, that's a, a secret, closely guarded. Really? Yeah. How is it that you don't have like some jerk that's like, I'm just gonna go through the magic thing, and they become, you know, they learn all the tricks and the. Trade. I think
1: they're out there, and I think that magicians try to. Get them to take stuff down and throw lawyers at them, uh, especially at that at that level. There, there was uh, speaking of Teller and this exact problem. Um, there was a case in the last few years where a guy in Europe, I I, I think he was, I think it was in Denmark, uh, basically replicated Teller's famous uh, shadows trick, and basically, what's the trick? He's been doing it for decades. He has a a vase of flower, uh, with flowers in it, a rose. Mm. It's basically a single rose with a long stem. And he has a, a, a light cast a shadow of that rose on a piece of paper behind. And Teller goes up to the shadow with a knife and he slices at the rose, uh, at the shadow. And then the real life rose sheds a petal. Hmm. It's beautiful. And this guy basically... Um, you know, it wasn't about figuring out how it was done. It was if you're if you're smart and you can engineer something, you can come up with a dozen ways to do that. Mm. Um, but he came up with a system and decided to market it and say, I'm selling this now. And Teller you know, Teller sued him and won. And and a couple things happened here. Teller was smart enough to copyright his trick as a pantomime, as a play.
0: Because you can't copyright tricks right that is
1: the problem that plagues all of magic, and that is why we all magicians kind of hate each other <laughs> because there's no intellectual property that can protect an illusion, just like you can't copyright a joke or a dance move you know, if it's not written in a tangible medium you can't but a pantomime
0: it. trick is different
1: i i you know, i think he he turned it into a a written he turned it into got a it. play got it um and and was successful and this guy, you know, pulled it from the shelves, so to speak. Um but but it's a it's a problem because all the all the magicians think that their peers are stealing from them. I mentioned that we're we're just building on these old tricks.
0: But do, but if you see a trick, you know, the 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 backyard uh whatever the card was, two yeah. of two of hearts or whatever. Um uh that's not a trick that you've done for the first time that's a trick that's been done 5,000 times by 5,000 people right it is, aren't you isn't part of it that you're kind of in collaboration in many respects or is it you're in collaboration you know that's that's like a massive index like I
1: could have all 52 cards under this table right now and I say
0: "Name." I was hoping yeah, that you yeah, were gonna we were yeah. gonna go into the garden you're gonna be like name a card and um, it was under my kid's trampoline <laughs>
1: yeah We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, so, yeah, these are, these are ways of thinking. And magicians will write books on this. And basically, when, when they come up with a trick, they'll perform it for a while. And they'll make a name for themselves performing it. And then they will give it to the magic community and put it in a book or put it in a DVD or a download. Got it. And when you do that, you're basically saying, this was mine you need to call this the mm-hmm. Kwong Backyard Trick and know that I came up with this and maybe give me $30 for it. Hmm. Um, but um, So in that way, it's collaborative, but there are a lot of tricks that have never been published and are trade secrets, and people can still you know, replicate those. In.
0: Uh, just wrapping up with a, f- a few last questions, has there ever been a trick that you've seen that you haven't been able to figure out?
1: Oh, certainly. Because um, I, I mentioned you get burned and you're like, and, and, and that happens all the time. And, and I have corrected that problem and I'll call up my friends and be like, please, please tell me how this was done. And they'll make me, <laughs> we call the 24 hour rule and they'll make me wait 24 hours and then they'll tell me. Um, but I'm trying to think if there's something out there right now that I don't know. Yeah, you know, often I can come up with my own way of doing it. Got it. But but I um I don't know specifically what they're doing. What
0: was one that you had to, you had to call a friend and wait 24 hours to figure out? Uh um, Like what's the coolest magic trick that you've ever seen?
1: Oh gosh. I don't know. It's all If you all, have to pick like, one,
0: if you if you're like banished to a desert island and you can only do one magic trick there for the rest of your life, even if it's someone else's, what is it? Um I think, okay,
1: you know what? This is a great thing to talk about. I love David Copperfield's 13, which was just in the news because the press had a field day about how he's in a lawsuit and had to reveal how that was done.
0: What was the. But but let me tell you the effect
1: before we, you know, talk about the secret. Um, The effect is amazing which is that he gets 13 random people, and he's done this trick thousands of times, I think tens of thousands of times because he toured the world for decades. He gets 13 random people, truly random, brings them up on stage, seats them on a platform, which gets raised up. It's covered by a cloth. gets raised up. They're all given flashlights to hold. And you can see the flashlights are on. And then... You know, he vanishes them all. The cloth is whisked away and they're gone. And they're immediately in the back of the house. And they're all holding their flashlights and waving them. And it's like, it's beautiful. It's incredible. And did they know how they got there? They know. And and David would appeal to them and say, please don't reveal how this is done. And I think he would give them, you know, he would do some sleight of hand for them backstage and take photos with them and say, look you know let's, it per- never let's preserve it this i you know people people would occasionally write about it and then you know his people would go and try to get it taken down and but but for the most part people were cool about it mm. which is which is awesome yeah you know um and and i think that that that's one of the best tricks i've ever seen
0: so so what happened recently so he was someone well,
1: i don't want to do my part in like revealing but it's all over the news but basically um, somebody got hurt moving from allegedly yeah from moving from backstage to the back of the house very quickly mm. and um you know they 're saying that Copperfield was at fault for for the conditions of that you know floor and the guy slipped and um i i that's that 's bad for the trick it's such a beautiful
0: trick and did uh did they still in the lawsuit or was it is it
1: i think they 're still in it yeah
0: got it. So if I want to know how that one works, I have to,
1: it's in. it was in the Hollywood reporter this week. I mean,
0: um, uh, all right. So last question for you. Um, if there was one trick that you like one trick that you want to do that you haven't done yet, are there tricks like that? Or there, is there something out there that you would like love to, it's actually a double last question. Uh, would, are there tricks out there that you would that you would like to do that you haven't figured out how to pull off yet? Uh, maybe you can't tell me that. But the other question is, if you had the opportunity to kind of like go work for like the CIA or the FBI consulting or even the Trump administration, would you do it? Or would it de- depend on what the case was? Um, I'd like to make the, make the Hollywood sign
1: disappear. I think, why not? Oh, that's not? a good idea. I mean, we... Yeah, I said this is all kind of generational. It kind of oscillates whether we're doing big stuff and small stuff and we're in a we're in a golden age of of small parlor shows right now. Be fun to make something big disappear and make it, you know, cell phone proof that no one can even from all angles no one can figure it out. So if you're an illusion builder call me cuz I don't know how to do that yet. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know, I, I love I love puzzles and magic and how I fuse them together. So I would like to do something with a chess chess board. I'm like, you know, started starting to put that together in my head. I would definitely go collaborate with the CIA. I don't with the FBI. I don't see. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of our president, but I see enough of a separation in departments there that I think I could, you know, I could
0: aid a bureau like that and not have a problem with it. So if if Donald Trump called you up and said, Can you make Stormy Daniels disappear? you would be like, not so much. I, I I wouldn't play any part of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, there was one last question I was going to ask you. I forgot to ask about the crosswords you do, right? Yeah. So you you create crosswords for the New York Times and other places. Does magic play a role in how you do those, or the way you kind of the the, the thinking behind it? Uh, they're they're very closely related, yes. Um, because a good puzzle
1: has twists and turns and misdirection in it, and you think that one thing's going on, and then you know there's that aha moment where you you figure out oh this is what this puzzle's about and. um of course, in magic you don't want that yeah. aha moment. You don't want people to figure out the secrets. But I think that you take people on a same, a similar journey of over the course of a trick of here's what's happening, and now I'm going to twist it. Um, and and what I what I try to instill into my shows, which you know my my, my performances are all about um, uh, collaborative puzzle solving and 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 making it fun for the audience, is this aha moment right and will shorts the editor of the new york times puzzle uh the great guru of puzzles and a wonderful friend and mentor he always said to me that the aha moment does two things it it's this moment where the puzzle solver unlocks a puzzle and feels smart
0: Mm -hmm. for having
1: cracked the code yeah but they also, in that moment, simultaneously respect the puzzle creator for having come up with something clever, <laughs> and I think that's a sweet spot that I try to. And I try to hit that in in, in storytelling too.
0: Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, mean, I what mean, film's f- all about let let f- the audience figure out the next scene before it happens. Exactly. But yeah. yeah,
1: and I and I remember watching. And there have been a number of films recently, but yeah, you know, like, I think the f- the first. Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. That one, I think there was no way for the audience to figure out the the hmm. the mystery, and mm-hmm. I was and and I didn't like that. You know, you got to dangle it for um, the audience to kind of piece it together.
0: All right, so uh, just to wrap up, you had all these amazing stories of old mu- magicians and and so on. You wanna you wanna end with another one, a final?
1: Oh I'll, I'll, yeah, something to think about. Um, the the great Dutch magician Tommy Wonder. It uh, has this great quote about misdirection, which I think really applies to the political sphere today. And that is that misdirection is the art of giving people something of greater interest. So it's not just snapping your fingers and saying, look over here, but it's creating something interesting that will draw their attention so if I'm going to, uh, if I want to steal something out of one of my left pocket, I might reach up with my right hand and make a coin appear. So often one magic trick is the misdirection for the next trick. Mm. So, you know, I think that's, that's how misdirection works.
0: I think that the, the Democratic Party could really, uh, could really work on that. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just walking on stage and dropping
1: a bunch of, of yeah pots to clang on the stage where everybody looks over. It's, it's a trick. It's it's a trick. It's giving something, uh, something of
0: greater interest. Well, this has been of great interest to me. This has been a fascinating conversation. Where can people follow you and see the show and all that stuff? Uh, I'm on Twitter, David Kwong. That's K-W-O-N-G.
1: Uh, Deceptions on ABC. It's uh, Sunday nights at 10 o'clock. Uh, we're after American Idol. It's a really fun, packed night. And, uh, you know... It's a blast. I hope you guys tune in.
0: Uh, and I am now going to go and Google YouTube all the magic tricks that, I, that I'm wondering about, specifically the astronaut in space. Thank you so and much. And I'm going to go bury some playing cards in your backyard. <laughs> <laughs> I'll turn around and pretend I'm not looking. Thank you. This is
1: Inside the Hive
0: with Nick Bilton. Back here with none other than John Kelly. John, Hi, pleasure, Nick. as always. It's great to be here. Uh,
2: It's always great to be here with you, my friend.
0: Uh, Of course. So um, I, I thought that was a fascinating conversation. I've always been intrigued by the whole concept of magic and magicians and people wanting to believe and so on. But I love the whole spies thing, which I think is a perfect segue into my feature this week. It, it is edited? a good segue
2: too, it's also a um a very Silicon Valley esque thing because it's uh it's an example of how you can use a technology, even one as um as seemingly sort of primitive as magic, uh, for for potentially nefarious uh uh results, which is what Silicon Valley seems to be doing these days. But you wrote an excellent story about um uh spooks in the valley and um and they're everywhere, it sounds like, right? And, and there's kind of no way to to, to hunt them down. And
0: um, and companies kind of don't know what to do about it. We're all fucked. Well, so, yeah. So I uh, it must have been eight months ago or something like that. I was talking to a CEO of one of the big tech companies. And they said to me, you know, I sometimes look around and think to myself, are there Russian and Chinese spies that work for me? And I just don't know it. And they're, you know they're stealing data and learning how the system works and maybe even building some of the systems to ensure that their counterparts back in their countries can, can get in. And, and I thought, wow, that's an intriguing idea. How is that even possible? Has that ever happened before? And, and I started doing a bunch of reporting and I spoke to John Markoff, who was a veteran reporter from the New York times for decades and a bunch of other people. And it turns out that there have been spies in Silicon Valley for, for many, many, many years Um, trying to recruit engineers to get information. In the early days, in the 70s and 80s, it was, of course, you know, they were trying to steal chip designs from Intel, and they were working on weapon technology, which was what Silicon Valley used to do. And then it kind of fell off for a while, but now with the advent of artificial intelligence, it it appears that they are back, um, and that not only are there... Russian and Chinese and North Korean spies likely working at companies like Twitter and Facebook and places like that. But uh, there are also domestic ones like NSA and CIA and FBI um, that are, that could be, you know, posing as Apple employees or Google employees um, right next to real engineers.
2: And it's also uh, tricky too, right, because a lot of these companies now do business with the U.S. government um, in terms of cl- cloud storage and, and, and you know... Uh other sort of B2B ways of working with the government.
0: Well what's what's interesting is is it's like in many aspects it's very similar to the way the government works you have all these government agencies and and this is in in my book American kingpin you, we saw this happen where you have the FBI the NSA the CIA the homeland security IRS that are all kind of hunting for one person but none of them want to work together and i think that what's so fascinating about the relationship between silicon valley and these these essential spook uh, outlets like the CIA and something is that on one hand, they're working together, you know, like Amazon is working with the department of defense right now to build AI technologies. And so is Google, um, you know, working with different governments, but at the same time, uh, they're also when, for example, the FBI, uh, um, wants to get into a cell phone apple won't let them in without a, a warrant and even then sometimes there's you know there's lots of issues that come up and and so you know in in one room they're they're all collaborating in another room they're kind of going at each other um in uh in not so nice ways which makes perfect sense you know if you're if you're running the FBI and god knows who's running it Uh, these days it seems like it's all over the place. But Mm -hmm. if you're running the FBI and you want to get into a cell phone because of a terrorism case, and Apple won't let you in, what better way to figure out how to get in than to have an agent go undercover, get a job there, and understand how the engineers and you're you're uh, you're
2: making a real life um, reference here to the sort of San Bernardino, uh, in Berilia where um, Apple caught a lot of flack for for um. I think on a human level it it seemed insincere that they wouldn't that they didn't want to turn over this data but but um they know what they're de- you know on a, on a deeper one the point you're making is they know what they're dealing with um when they turn it over you know and yeah they have a lot to be concerned yeah. with
0: No and it's it's um especially so one so it's one thing to you know be able to kind of unlock a phone uh and I'm sure China would want to know how to do that too um but I think it's another thing uh, Russia probably wouldn't want to know. They just kill the people they don't like. They accidentally fall out of a 12-story building. Um, but but uh, on a deeper level, when you start to look at the AI that people are building, um, you could. It seems it makes a lot of sense why uh, why there are definitely people working in the Valley that are um, are doing this stuff. So and Nick, what what uh,
2: country uh, scares the bejesus out of um, tech executives the most?
0: I think China is pretty scary. Um, I think that people from the people I spoke to, they kind of look at Russia as kind of just like a thug-like in many ways. It's um, it's a why. lot of prop. Yeah, I wonder why it's a lot of propaganda. Um, you know, I think you know what's so fascinating with the discussion I just had with David Wong about how you know the reason magic works is because people want to believe. Is in in the same you know reporting I've done where I've spoken to uh folks in russia or or who have left russia they wanna believe that the country is more powerful even though they know that the it's just a facade that that um that putin is putting Putin's putting on with his with the things that he's doing um and the propaganda on social media and so on and so forth but but I think the big fear is china mm-hmm. um and and I've heard this from from people all over the place where they talk about the fact that um you know it is a uh, it's a scary country. They are, you know, President G is is very very smart, very un- uh, understanding of power dynamics of the West, of of the opportunity he has with Trump in power, with uh, with Russia and the West and Brexit and everything. And uh, and he like Putin, like folks in Silicon Valley, unlike Trump, um, uh, recognizes that the future of uh, of the world of warfare, of of economics, and everything is artificial intelligence. And there's a really interesting little anecdote about him. Every year he does his his State of the Union kind of address from his office, uh, and it's posted on YouTube and and other social sites. And there's a game that a lot of people play. Is he's a, an avid reader, um, President Xi, and um, there the game people play is they look at the bookshelf, the bookshelves around him in in the videos to to see what it is he's, he's interested in that year and uh and last year the big thing was there were a few uh artificial intelligent books um and uh and he's you know he sees it as the future and China has absolutely no qualms uh stealing ip uh yeah. from us and so you know
2: and that is one of the things that Donald Trump is correct about um although it's not uh not that it's necessarily a sincere position that he holds but um uh but but by the way you know um we would steal ip in their shoes too and that um that that's just called business competition in this in this culture to some degree so yeah yeah um, what scares you the most nick i mean you're a sort of fearless man you know you have a beard um uh but what, what 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 scares you the most about this i mean you you've you've sort of been talking about this um long enough that you sounded crazy at first years ago um and now you're just kind of coming into the mainstream. What, what what keeps you
0: up at night? Which which part was I sounding crazy about? The social media, the spies. The oh well, yeah, the, the, the idea that the idea
2: that there were that 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 there was this sort of subliminal John le Carre novel taking place, uh, you know, beneath the surface with all these like wonky half zip wearing Stanford guys with bad haircuts. Like uh, people, you know, I, I thought you were kind of a kook when you would talk about it, um, but but you were not a kook, Nick. You were. Thanks You're thanks Sean right. I You're really right.
0: appreciate those kind words. Um, uh, look I think that I do think that it's interesting I've I've spoken t- I get to you know one of the great parts of my job and doing this podcast is I get to speak to a lot of really smart people that that are hyper focused on certain areas of technology and society and politics and culture and and there's a, there are a few consistencies in what people say except one and the consistency is that everyone Everyone is afraid, except Mark Zuckerberg, and, right. and I think that he's probably deep down still afraid too. Everyone is afraid of what is going to happen with artificial intelligence. There is a belief that 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 unlike nuclear power and nuclear weapons, which which were in the hands of, of of which were very difficult to build and were in the hands essentially of yeah sure right you know even if it was a dictator, it was one person who still had a rational group of people around them um or half rational ai is something that is is not going to be in the hands of one person it is going to be something that is in the hands of itself and and i think that what what scares me the most is is kind of the hollywood version of this which is that we build something that goes rogue and can't be stopped uh and the only way you can stop it is by unplugging it and the only way you can unplug it is by unplugging everything and we're kind of faced with that that decision. And, um, and I think that um, when you think about the fact that, you know, artificial intelligence, whether it's a year out or 20 years out, or whatever it is, eventually, it will be smarter than we are in many respects, and we will not be able to understand what it is doing. And there's a classic example, Facebook was working on some AI stuff. Um, and uh, the AI, there was two AIs that were talking to each other, and they, they Uh, They soon started to – they developed their own language, and the machines had to be unplugged because no one knew what they were talking about. Um, And you see this over and over, these very rudimentary basic artificial intelligence technologies that people are working on, IBM, places like that um and the things that they do that no one ever expects and it's one thing with uh with a conversation on social media or you know playing you know a game of go or whatever it is and it's something completely different when it comes to warfare and and wall street and and um the power grids in america and i think that if we're we are we do have some of the smartest technology technology engineers in the planet working in Silicon valley and tech in seattle and places um, but all it takes is a thumb drive uh, for someone to take that and it to just spiral completely out of control. Well, Nick, we're fucked, huh? I think yeah. I think that the uh, the theme, you know, I think this is I think this is podcast fifty, I believe, maybe fifty one. Happy birthday, we're, we're sweet pro- prince. We're approaching we're approaching a year, and there's been a theme of consistency. That hopefully i will will live to regret saying, and I will get it wrong but the 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 reality is I think we're pretty fucked
2: no it it's um it's all scary stuff, it actually uh you've you've converted me um I used to think a lot of this was was blase, and I sort of blithely uh tuned you out <laughs> Just, as you would go on these yeah. these like dystopian rants but um if we've learned two things uh it's that it's happening. And it's happening a lot faster than um, than anyone could predict. And that, that's that's all, all these all these kind of technological tributaries, but in particular, the most um, uh, the most genocidal ones um, are uh, are rapidly uh, uh, approaching us. So, um, uh, on that note, I've done my job here, I think, right? <laughs> I've, I've, you have. I've, I just I've freaked I, everyone I wanna... out. Yeah, get in your bunkers inside the hive, listeners. Put your Speaking head down into the desk.
0: of technology. The raid's coming. You, you, have to, you have to check out the uh, – I know I, I rail against technology, but you have to check out uh, the Away suitcase that I got. Uh, it's amazing. It's got a little power station in it, and you can charge your cell phone while you're traveling.
2: Well, that's pretty sweet. It's I can't wait cool. for that. That's, a, um, that's an
0: innovation I can get behind. Yes, me too. Um, all right, John. Uh, Till next week. I will miss you um uh, till till uh till something scary again next week. Well, actually next week we, we have a, we have a we have a great guest. I'm a, I'm off to go interview them right now and it's it's I think it's going to be a pretty compelling conversation. So I will leave it at that. Great tease Nick. I can't wait. <laughs> So that's it for this week. I want to thank my guest, David Guang, and, of course, John Kelly, my editor. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and listen to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a really nice review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Away Travel. Uh, Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.